Last month, I spent a week in Scotland. Before driving up to the Isle of Skye, one of the most incredible road trips I've ever been on, we spent several days in Edinburgh, and one of the things we did there gave me the idea for this short episode. We walked through Greyfriars Kirkyard at night, where Burke and Hare famously stole fresh bodies for the medical schools, and where J.K. Rowling got inspiration for the names of some of her best-known characters, Tom Riddle and Minerva McGonagall among them, and we stood in a place right off the high street where a building known as the Old Tollbooth stood for over 400 years that housed all manner of torture, torment, and even public execution. One of these deaths, a hanging on the gallows built right out in front of the building, was that of a man whose bizarre and duplicitous life would become the inspiration for one of fiction's most well-known horror stories. His two-timing ways were so shocking that none other than Robert Louis Stevenson felt called upon to investigate him. The man was Deacon William Brody, but you may know him as the real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. put the glass to his lips and drank at one gulp. A cry followed. He reeled, staggered, clutched at the table and held on, staring with injected eyes, gasping with open mouth. And as I looked, there came, I thought, a change. He seemed to swell. His face became suddenly black and the features seemed to melt and alter. And the next moment, I had sprung to my feet and leapt back against the wall, my arm raised to shield me from that prodigy, my mind submerged in terror. Oh God, I screamed, and oh God, again and again, for there before my eyes, pale and shaken and half-fainting, and groping before him with his hands like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. Tollbooth was located to the northwest of St. Giles Cathedral, just off the High Street section of the Royal Mile in Old Town, Edinburgh. It was a medieval structure established by royal charter in the 14th century, and it served as an actual tollbooth, a chamber for the Burgh Council, a house of the Court of Session, and a meeting place for the Parliament of Scotland. The reason I'm talking about it today, however, is that it was also an infamous, squalid prison where inmates were incarcerated in terrible conditions, physical punishment and judicial torture was routinely carried out, and, eventually, public executions were conducted. 
The toll booth was the main jail of Edinburgh, but the Burg executions had historically taken place at the Murkett Cross or at the Grass Market. There is a pub there today with the tongue-in-cheek name of The Last Drop that apparently sits on the spot of the old Grass Market gallows. In 1785, however, a two-story extension was finished on the west side of the old toll booth. This extension had a tall platform with a scaffold erected on top. This spot, high above the square below, provided the perfect place for public hangings. Now, the toll booth had been used for all sorts of punishment in the past. The torture meted out there included the boot, a term used for a variety of devices that slowly crush the bones of the leg and foot, pillywinks, also known as thumbscrews, and jugs, which were iron collars attached to the exterior of the building so that offenders could be chained up outside in full view of the public. Perhaps the most notorious public display to take place at the old toll booth, however, was the practice of exhibiting the body parts of prisoners who had been executed at other sites. Because the toll booth was so centrally located and was the seat of the Berg's judicial power, it was the perfect place to show off what happened to people who broke the law and warn others not to follow in their footsteps. An array of spikes outside the building was used to show off decapitated heads. The most notorious prisoners' contorted faces could be seen all the way up on a stake that was called the Prick of the Highest Stone, a spike on the northern gable of the building that faced directly onto the high street. These gruesome exhibits were sometimes left up until they rotted. The Regent Morton's head, for example, was stuck up there for 18 months in 1581, and the head of Montrose is said to have sat there for 10 years. In 1817, after many renovations and many accounts of the squalid conditions within its walls, the old toll booth was torn down. Today, if you go to where it once stood you will find the heart of Midlothian, a stone mosaic embedded in the cobblestones in Parliament Square that marks the doorway to the old prison. If you stand there long enough, you may see someone spit on the heart, a tradition believed to have been started by prisoners as they were freed and left the jail behind them. Our short story today, however, comes from a time when the gallows of the old toll booth were new. It's a story that ends with the largest public execution that ever took place in Edinburgh. On this day, in 1788, a crowd of over 40,000 people crowded into the square to watch the man they knew as Deacon Brody hang. The story, of course, begins long before that. William's grandfather, Ludwig, was a member of an ancient society of lawyers known as the Signet. His son, William's father, Francis, was a cabinet maker in Edinburgh. He had a good following and was well-respected by the community who elected him to the town council. He served as the deacon of the Incorporation of Rights, an organized group of local craftsmen, and he lived in a mansion in Brodie's Close. William was born in this mansion on September 28, 1741, and he was all set to follow in his father's footsteps. 
We don't know much about his early life, but it seems as though he probably got a good education and all the benefits you would expect the son of a well-off citizen of Edinburgh to receive at the time. We do know that he was apprenticed to his father's trade, and he went on to be a cabinet maker in his own right, and even to serve the incorporation of rights in the same position as Francis before him, which is how he became Deacon Brody. Deacon was a term for a leader. It had nothing to do with religion. William was known to be quite skilled at making domestic furniture, like cupboards and cabinets with locks. Apparently, he was not only a fine woodworker, but also a very talented locksmith. And this would prove to be both his making and his undoing. William was known as an upstanding citizen, but there was something going on beneath the surface. In 1768, when he was 27, he copied a set of keys to a bank door, and he stole 800 pounds. This was quite a sum in the mid-18th century, and he was able to live off of it for some time, although there was more brewing inside him than just a desire for discretionary income. In 1782, Francis died of palsy, and William inherited 10,000 pounds, the mansion in which he grew up, at least four houses in Edinburgh, and the cabinet-making-slash-locksmith business. Deacon Brody, as he was now known, was very well off. Not only did he get that huge profit upon his father's death, but his business was booming. His connection to the town council meant that most of the city work went to the Brodies, and like his father and his grandfather before him, he was widely respected and had a great deal of power. All Deacon Brody needed to do was keep the ball rolling and he was basically guaranteed a lifetime of profit and ease. But that wasn't enough for him. You see, it turned out that the good deacon craved other things. He had a ravenous taste for partying, and he was apparently quite the womanizer. He was married, and he had at least two mistresses and five children between them. In short, his life was getting very... He was a member of the most exclusive club in Edinburgh, known as the Cape, and he socialized with the gentry of the city and the top artists of Scotland, like the poet Robert Burns and the painter Henry Rayburn. But he began to spend more time in the city's less reputable haunts. One particular tavern in Flesh Market Close was a favorite of his. This place was notorious for late-night drinking and carousing, but the thing that really seems to have pushed Deacon Brody farther down the rabbit hole of vice was the gambling. Games with both cards and dice were on offer, but Deacon Brody was especially fond of cockfighting. And he lost. He lost a lot. He started out with a fortune, But supporting his gambling habit, and his wife, and his two mistresses, and his five children, was more than his fortune could handle. His daytime business was thriving, but his nighttime occupation was taking a heavy toll. He was, however, a highly regarded member of the town council, as I said, and an upstanding citizen, and the sort of person whom members of the criminal class were supposed to admire. 
So because of this power and influence, he was routinely hired by the very richest households in Edinburgh to do work on their locks. As I said before, he was highly skilled in this particular art and was called on not only to fix and install locks on door handles, but also to create security mechanisms for safely guarding valuables. This gave him not only access to the homes and the treasures of upper-class Edinburgh, but it also gave him an idea. He began to make wax impressions of the keys he produced so that he could copy them and return in the dead of night to rob the inhabitants who had trusted him in the day. He stole cash and gold and jewels, and he used this extra income to fund his double life. This side enterprise did so well that he decided to expand his team. In the summer of 1786, he met an unusual Englishman who had just moved to town, George Smith, and the two went into business together. Smith was also a locksmith, and he was also a grocer. He ran a shop in Cowgate. Things might have turned out very differently if Deacon Brody had never met George Smith. By the end of 1786, the pair were busily engaged robbing the businesses and private homes of Old Town in tandem. At the end of the year, they robbed a goldsmith shop and tobacconist, and on Christmas Eve, they made off with a huge haul from Bruce Brothers, stuffing their sacks with rings, lockets, and watches. Things were looking so profitable that they decided to expand the team. At the beginning of 1787, they recruited two other thieves, John Brown, who was on the run from a seven-year sentence, and Andrew Ainsley, who made shoes. By the summer of 1787, the four had broadened their interests even further, knocking over a grocer's shop for a large supply of tea, which was a very hot commodity at the time. Growing ever more bold, they went on to steal the ceremonial mace from the University of Edinburgh. It seemed like nothing could topple them. But, as we know, there's at least one noose waiting in the future— and their next act of daring would start the tumble that led to the gallows. Small businesses and private treasures were all well and good, and the university coffers seemed a nice treat. But after so much success, why not go for the brass ring? They decided the time had come for their biggest heist yet, and they made plans to rob the revenues of Scotland itself. You see... Right at the bottom of the Royal Mile sat Chessel's court, home to the excise office of Edinburgh. This time, quite possibly for the first time, the gang armed themselves with pistols. Going against another of their habits, they broke in rather than use a key. And this error raised the alarm. They were nearly caught and they managed to make off with only 16 pounds for their trouble. The whole job was a total fiasco, and the gang blamed each other. The great partnership began to crumble, and they turned on one another. 
John Brown, who was already on the run, was tempted by a 150-pound reward being offered by the sheriff for information about a previous robbery. Angry about the way things were heading with his fellow thieves, he went to the sheriff's clerk and named Ainsley and Smith as the culprits. When Brody heard that two members of his little team had been arrested, he tried to visit them in the old tollbooth jail, but he wasn't allowed in. This made him sure that the gig was up. He packed what he could and he fled Edinburgh. He took a stagecoach to London, then hopped a ship to the Netherlands. Back in Scotland, a huge reward was offered for his capture, and so, as he hid in a cupboard in an inn in Holland, the trap was set and he was routed out. He was shipped back to Edinburgh to stand trial with his partner. The trial of Deacon Brody and George Smith began on August 27, 1788. There was almost no hard evidence at first, except for the copied keys and the various disguises and pistols that were found hidden in Brody's home and workshop. But then Brown and Ainsley testified, and the jury had enough to pronounce the two men guilty. The whole trial lasted only 21 hours. And so, on October 1st, 1788, in front of that big crowd of 40,000 people who gathered in front of the old tollbooth gallows, 47-year-old Deacon Brody strode to the platform. Many depictions of this moment show him dressed in fine clothes and a powdered wig, bourgeois to the end. According to some legends, he also wore a secret steel collar with a silver tube to protect his neck. It was said that he had bribed the hangman and arranged for his body to be quickly carried away before anyone could see that he had survived the hanging. If this arrangement is true, then he was truly a scam artist to the end. But the plan did not work. He was dropped down the hole and hung till he was dead. He was buried in an unmarked grave on Chapel Street, and the spot now lies beneath a parking lot behind university lecture halls. His death didn't stop the rumors of his excesses, however. For years after his hanging, stories circulated that he was seen in Paris, living large even as his grave sat cold. The mysterious and extraordinary life of Deacon Brody seemed to go on without him. I want to end this little episode as we began, with a passage from the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, meant to explain the inner workings of this two-faced man. Though so profound a double dealer, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. I was no more myself when I laid aside restraint and plunged in shame than when I labored in the eye of day at the furtherance of knowledge or the relief of sorrow and suffering. With every day, and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck. That man is not truly one, but truly two.
Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. If you like what we do, please take a moment to write us a review, or at least give us a few stars on iTunes. It really helps us out. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Pod and visit our website for links to source materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.